Uh, well, good morning, Sunset Church. Uh, for those of you who may be visiting or, or new, uh, my name is Chris. I'm the middle school director here at Sunset Church. Um, so I'm usually with uh, the, the youth here at uh, the church. Uh, but this morning, I have the privilege of uh, opening God's uh, word with you uh, today. And I've think, been thinking and reflecting upon a lot about uh, this past year uh, being at this church, as well as um, looking forward to some goals that I have for next year. As we approach the end of the year, we often reflect on the past 364 days. Meanwhile, we also make goals and conceive of our hopes for the next year. Simply put, we make New Year's resolutions. And earlier this week, I came across um, a page on National Public Radio's website, NPR's website, titled Life Kit's New Year's Resolution Planner, 50 Ideas to Help You Move Forward in 2024. And the article consisted of artistic image icons representing various resolutions and resources to help readers hit the ground running and make bold moves in their personal life in 2024. Here's a few of those resolutions and helps that were like provided for common goals many people in our world, such as ourselves, may desire to turn into reality as we look forward to the new year. Start new traditions. Spend more quality time with kids. Make a budget. Get better at saying no. Find a book to read. Clean out my clutter. Be a morning person. Drink enough water. Sleep better. Start a side hustle. Learn a new language. Get married. And get healthier. Now, prevent, to prevent you from maybe jumping to conclusions about this being an entire curated list for myself as my own personal resolutions, let me clarify which one actually resonates with me as I look forward to the next year. A personal revolution for, uh, resolution for myself is to get healthier. And by that, I'm talking about physical health. While I realize that there are many factors to physical health that are outside of my control, there are some things I can do to grow and experience relatively better health. And they can be summed up in two words, diet and exercise. Now, I know there's a bit of despair for some of you who hear those two words. After all, it may mean saying no to that quart-sized tub of ice, uh, cookies and cream ice cream and saying yes to fruit as an alternative dessert. And I'm literally crying inside as I say that. Nevertheless, we recognize that if we hope to experience significant change in our bodies, whether it be weight loss, grow in strength, cardiovascular endurance, there's going to be some blood, sweat, and tears involved. It's going to take commitment. You know that goals and hopes we have in life aren't going to come easily simply by you rolling out of bed. We recognize part of the painful process in, in fighting against our natural desire for comfort and ease. And you, that's why people push through and experience exhaustion from running, soreness from lifting weights. You know that current habits will need to change in order to see change. Yet we commit ourselves to these goals and resolutions in life. We're really sub subject ourselves through the process, which often involves pain and discomfort. Why? because we expect it to ultimately pay off at the end, that it will all be worth it. 
As with many things we commit our time and energy to, we're hoping for a better life, a better outcome. The fruit of our labor and efforts can be summed up in one word, blessed. We want to be blessed in life. We want happiness or that we, which we will believe will make us happy. Yet as believers, there's something greater, something more important that we can commit our lives to, even in seeking better health, a better job, a better personal family rhythm in your life, maybe, in 2024. Because as Christians, we know what matters most, what's more significant in life than anything else, is our relationship with God. This year, we covered a series in the Lord's Prayer, on the Lord's Prayer. And our hope with that series was that as a church, we would be stretched in a way that would cause us to grow in our relationship with God through prayer. After all, prayer is one of the foundational means of growing in our relationship with God. It's not an additional supplement. It's the staple of the spiritual diet of the Christian life. And this morning, we're focusing our attention on another means of grace, a gift from God intended for us to, to grow in in our relationship with him. The Bible Scripture, God's special revelation to mankind. Why? Because true blessing is received through the word of God. Prayer and scripture go hand in hand as the foundational pathways, conduit, whereby we experience growth in our relationship with God. Yet for some of us, if we're being honest, our relationship with knowing and understanding scripture sometimes feels like a chore. And hearing a message on being in the Word maybe triggers guilt or shame, maybe because your Bible reading plan that you started this year uh, fizzled out by January or February. Or you're maybe wrestling with a lot of uh, questions that you don't know answers to or who to go to help for, or maybe too shy to ask. You feel it's so difficult to persevere when it feels like you're not getting much out of it. And if that's you, I want to let you know there is hope. You see, the Bible is more than just a duty and discipline in the Christian life. The Bible, Scripture, is meant for our delight. It's how we can experience true blessing. And that's why Psalm 1 deserves our attention this morning. It sets the tone and frames the entire book, and the psalm helps us to connect the dots between Scripture and what it means to have a vibrant relationship with God. And it offers a unique perspective on Scripture, it offers motivation, a passionate encouragement for why should we should resolve in our lives to grow in our relationship with God's word so that by it, we may directly and proportionally grow in our relationship with God. It's an invitation to hear from our glorious God so that we may live for God's glory. It's a resolution for next year and every subsequent year of our lives so that we would learn to be satisfied in him. This morning, we're going to focus on this key idea from our passage, that true happiness is experienced when we delight ourselves in God through his word. In order to do that, we'll look at three marks of true blessing, three marks of true blessing. One, what you avoid. Two, what you pursue. And three, what's your outcome? First mark of true blessing, what you avoid. Look with me at verse one. Right off the bat, the psalmist defines how you experience true blessing. The psalmist paints a picture that depicts the spiritual condition, the way of life of those who are in a right relationship with God. In short, these, those people are who are truly best, blessed. 
But no further after declaring blessed is the man, we see a significant shift. Blessed is defined by what it's not. The opposite of the blessed man is given. Here's a definition by way of contrast picture. A blessed man is defined by what he doesn't do, how he doesn't walk, what manner he doesn't conduct his lifestyle in. What he is not ruled by, nor will allow to set the agenda and direction in his life. The threefold description of how not to live is, is framed as a downward spiral in three statements of how they don't walk, like three stages of getting more and more comfortable and settled into worldliness. It's a sinful lifestyle that grows in intensity. First, he's walking. Then he stops. Then he sits with them. It's a picture of being influenced by the wicked. You're listening to the advice of those who just aren't godly nor desire the things of God. You're seeing someone who doesn't live for God as being a counselor to you, and you lend your ear to them and the advice that they give you on decisions and pursuits, things you should be doing, things you should long after and care for in life. But then the second stage of regression is you're identifying with the sinners. In a sense, your lifestyle is aligned with those who are ignorant or, or intentionally failing to obey God. Your beliefs and convictions are aligned with them. So you went from a mere walking passerby of that alluring store in front of World's Town Mall, and you're now a consumer willingly buying into sin. You went from a passive listener to lending your ear to now an active participant in sin. And finally, you're sitting with scoffers, those who ridicule the righteous and mock and criticize God and even the idea that a good and loving God exists. But don't lose sight of the sitting part with scoffers. You're joining in collusion with them, spreading a kind of worldly lifestyle of sin through sarcastic laughter and reveling in it. You're starting to think and talk like them in every way. You're twins. You're the spitting image of one another. Seeing and calling good evil and evil good. One of the barriers to some readers when we read Psalm 1 is that the black and white contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And this contrast is thematically woven throughout the entire psalm, contrasting the conduct and way of life between these two groups. Some may be offended that everyone is lumped into these two categories, righteous or wicked, that's because when we hear the word wicked in our modern use of the word, we're thinking that everyone who doesn't believe in God, uh, you know, are, are those arc villains we see in the books we read and movies we see in popular culture. So after all, you know, we wouldn't identify ourselves as walking in the council of Darth Vader, right? Or, or confess that we stand in the way of Disney Marvel's Loki, you know, who's always up to no good as he manipulates people um, for his own selfish end. We definitely wouldn't identify or align ourselves as being wicked in the sense of sitting in a seat with Voldemort and the Death Eaters from J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter. But understand that while the wicked definitely includes those who seem the evilness of evil as we conceive of evil, wickedness can also describe people who may seem and act kind of nice. You see, biblically, the word wicked is defined by their relationship to God. They are apart from God. So in essence, they are ungodly. They don't live or care about God. God's word doesn't matter to them. There's a lot of people out there in this world 
who don't know God, but believe they live good and morally righteous lives. There are nice people in this world that are willing to share their opinions to you loud and clear about the things they idolize or belief systems or ideologies that they regard as indisputable truth. But they're still wicked in the sense that they fail to worship and acknowledge their creator. And instead, they worship creation and treasure this world. The description of the wicked as opposed to the righteous is intentional. It's meant as a warning. It's lazy lady wisdom shouting to the righteous, God's people, to avoid this kind of worldly thinking, to not get gradually entangled by the world, by the world's ideas, by the world's philosophies and theories for life. It warns us against being swept up by the subtle nature of worldliness that can creep into our lives and how we can become influenced by others. Why? Because such lifestyles do not lead to the good life. It doesn't leave you with ultimate happiness or satisfaction. And there's an important lesson to be learned here. That you will become what you behold. What you set your affections towards. The type of people you want to listen to and live like and become. That is who you will ultimately become like. If you follow along the same pursuit as them. And one of the foundation principles, foundational principles we learn from this verse is a subtle pitfall that this way of life can creep into us and influence our desires, our ambitions into the new year. Just think about this for a minute. The description of worldliness that the psalmist provides follows this subtle pattern. First, it seeps into your thinking, right? As you're walking by, you know, you're considering the word spoken. Then it begins to shape your behavior, right? As you're standing with them, right? And it begins to shape your thinking more and more until you find yourself at home sitting with them in this world. And you now belong with the rest of the world. That is your community where you seek to find happiness and experience what you believe to be a life of satisfaction. Earlier this year, um, I had the opportunity to travel to uh, New York City for the very first time in my life for vacation. It was a very brief four-day trip, but boy, oh boy, did I jam-pack my itinerary with places to eat, uh, museums, parks, uh, musicals, uh, coffee shops, and other famous landmark buildings. In essence, I landed in New York as an eager tourist from SF. And as, as soon as I got off the railroad car, which stopped at Grand Central Station, a major uh, a public transportation hub, I was shocked. Everyone was walking so fast. They were going to, like, to be late for everything that day. They had that kind of pace to them, their, their, their life. It made people getting off the SF Muni like, seem like walking slowpokes, you know? But slowly but surely, by the end of my trip, I was walking just as fast as everyone else. The thinking that if I want to accomplish much in life, if I want to maximize time in my vacation, here at least, I need to hustle like these New Yorkers. Not only that, when I used to ride SF Muni, I would just mind my own business, avoid talking to anyone, right? Keep your eyes down, you know? I'd be that guy looking down at his phone or, or sleeping, but in New York City, if people have a question or want something, they'll just confront you, they'll just ask. They're very direct people, right? And so I, I found myself getting in conversations with strangers as a, as a tourist. And by the end of my trip, not only did I fall in love with New York City, I could easily see myself belonging 
fitting in, keeping up with this fast-paced, loud community of people with big dreams and ambitions scattered throughout the different boroughs in this giant metropolis city known as Big Apple. Of course, this is the romanticized, short-lived kind of mentality I had during my trip when I realized, you know, SF has a lot to offer that New York doesn't, even though it's a smaller, less dense city. I had almost forgotten my initial commitment to reestablish and grow deep roots in the community here in SF and with this church family while I romanticized about life there that only spent four days there. I went from a tourist to considering the lifestyle to trying to fit in to associating and imitating their lifestyle. And guys, if I stayed any longer, I may have donned those evil white letters NY on my baseball cap, okay, which would in clear evidence I had turned to the dark side of the Yankees. Now, I'm not sharing this story because I'm trying to equate New York City as the epitome of worldliness, while people like us in SF get a free pass like we're innocent doves. Rather, I share this story as an example of how ideas, a certain lifestyle, a certain level of attainment can creep into our lives and affect our behavior until we find ourselves belonging like we're at home with our people. It's an example like the psalmist of how worldliness can creep into our lives to the point where we form unhealthy habits from those guiding principles until we're no different from those around us. You see, worldliness doesn't have to be something extreme or overt, like you decide you're going to de-church yourself and, and join a, a, a cult, you know, or, or an atheist club, or, or, or doing something criminal, like blatantly breaking the law, like dealing drugs out on the streets in, the S, in SF. Worldliness can be subtle and deceptively affect you in covert ways. It could be good things in this world, things that aren't necessarily sin, or ordinary things that we kind of just do in life out of our Christian liberties or responsibilities in life, but slowly but surely, they become a ruling thing for your life, and you have this insatiable desire for more, for doing whatever you can in your power, strength, and time to get this thing, to achieve it. It could be the pressures in this world drawing to believe that you need to keep up with the Joneses, Things you want are now things you must have. Maybe it's a house, a certain lifestyle that will garner you respect or pedigree by those around you or those you associate with. For maybe youth and college students in here this morning listening, maybe worldly thinking is having your peers praise you because of your grades and you seek that praise. Your achievements in sports or music, like getting first chair in orchestra, so you're going to hustle and do anything you can to achieve that hope, even at the expense of caring about your relationship with God. Maybe for some of you, it's having the perfect idyllic family. You've come to rationalize that God must give you in order for you to experience happiness. Worldliness can even happen in families, in parenting, when parents disciple the next generation to believe worldliness is okay. How? Because as parents, you may be projecting values to your children that reveal what matters to you personally rather than align it to God's desire for your children. You are demonstrating to them by your leadership, time, resources, where true happiness is found according to you. And now those expectations you have for your children are lists of must for your children. 
could be getting into a prestigious high school, excelling at sports, a future scholarship, heading towards a select few acceptable career paths that involve these three key words, money, prestige, security. You see, the blessed man person doesn't believe whatever he hears and doesn't behave like others just so that he can feel like he belongs to a certain community or group. He doesn't act under the assumption, well, if I have this or do this, others will, will like me more. Others will regard me as one of them. Yet how often have we believed or done things so that we would be liked or accepted by people rather than believing and living a life pleasing to God? Sure, you might stand out or stand alone in a sea of crowd or in various spaces or relationships, whether it be school, work, or social groups. And guess what? You may even be thought of as weird, strange. Have a totally countercultural view of life. A religious nutcase. But that's okay because you care more about what God thinks than the thoughts of men. While we may not be foolish enough to dive straight into the deep end of the pool of worldliness, the question for you this morning is this. Are you slowly drifting from God and conforming more to the pattern of thinking, way of life as the world around you? Are you slowly drifting? Has your desire for God become lukewarm? Has worldliness crept into your life? And if so, what are those things that you need to confess and grow in surrender to the Lord? Beloved, examine your hearts, consider your ways. What are your hopes and resolutions for next year? Have your thoughts been informed and shaped by God-honoring pursuits or informed and shaped by the prevailing culture's hopes and resolutions for next year? The life of those who are blessed isn't just characterized, though, by negative statements of what to avoid. The psalmist teaches us to say no to the world in order to say yes to the one thing worthy of our focus, one thing worthy of pursuing in life, and that brings us to our second mark of blessing. Look with me at verse 2, where we see the second mark, what you pursue. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The first thing that we see is the attitude of pursuit, the heart posture of one who is blessed. The word delight, the word delight describes the experience of one who's truly happy. Because when you delight in something, you're willing to give it consistent thought, right? When you delight in a story or a good fantasy or sci-fi novel, you consider the characters, the plot, the, the tension or problem that's being resolved, and how it all unfolds. You relish and appreciate every little detail the author puts into crafting your latest Goodread. You're totally immersed into the story and give your mental focus. Because as you're immersed, it's as if the people, the characters, that world becomes alive. Have you ever met someone or uh, maybe know someone who's very passionate or interested in a particular subject or hobby, right? Um, he or she can talk about it for like hours and not lose steam. I, I have a friend like that, or I should say friends like that. Uh, he has boxes and boxes of comic books because he loves reading. But not only loved reading, he talks about it for hours. 
He breaks things down into detail. He remembers certain story arcs of Marvel comics, and he even started a podcast that's on Spotify where he and his friend talks about the latest Marvel movies and comic book source materials they draw their inspiration or were adapted from. You see, people who are passionate about an interest of theirs, whether it's K-pop, food, coffee, sports, books, knives, dancing, they, they, they tend to stand out from people, right? The sort of people who are maybe lukewarm or meh when it comes to their personal hobbies or interests. Why? Because we notice their zealous delight, a happy dedication. Similarly, that, that dedication, that sort of enthusiasm is what marks someone who is blessed when it's directed towards a pursuit of the law of the Lord. That is a singular object of delight. You see, that singular object of delight is the law of the Lord. And so while when we think of the law of the word as, as the Torah, which it is, the first five books of the Bible, and, and the word Torah itself literally means instruction, guidance. And it was to show the original audience, God's covenant people, as they would have understood it, as precious instruction for life with God. Truth to see the world with clarity and the way it is and what will, it will become in God's plan for redemption and making all things new recorded from Genesis to Revelation. For us, this applies to the whole Bible, the entirety of God's revelation, special revelation. The Bible is truth for life without contradiction, without error, sufficient for life and godliness. You see, the blessed person has a specific attitude towards God's word that leads to a certain devotion, which then leads to a consistent meditation on God's word. And that attitude is described in Psalm 119, verse 131, where it reads, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. That's the mindset of those who are blessed. It's like when you're thirsty, on a hot day in the, <clears throat> in the summer, after playing sports at a park, or maybe like some of our youth and older adults here, spending an evening playing basketball or badminton at Sunset Church's gym, which often smells like body odor, in my opinion. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. <clears throat> your mouth is dry and you're panting for water. So you go straight to the water fountain in the CE building side, eagerly longing for that cold stream of water to dance down your mouth. And that's the same feeling the blessed have, but for God's word. Just as there's nothing more natural than for a person to drink water in order to live, there is nothing more natural than for a blessed man or woman to drink from the fount of God's word in order to live, to thrive in life, to be refreshed and experience true blessing. You see, meditating on God's word means reading your Bible consistently. It means whatever you're reading, you're also reading it repeatedly over and over, like chewing on food before you ingest and swallow. You're trying to understand and grasp what God has to say and what that word means as he intended it. Meditating on God's word means murmuring God's word over and over, whispering it to yourself, either in your mind, in that quiet voice, that normal voice. Why? So you can recall and you can recount those truths, those promises, those encouragements when you need them most in life. Remember and recall God's promises during times of trial, in times of suffering. To remember to be thankful in times, 
develop a foundation where your faith will not be shaken by any circumstance or what comes your way. Because over the course of your life, as God's beloved child, you're growing and listening and receiving the instruction of a loving and good father who seeks your best. Beloved, is that the attitude and delight you experience when it comes to God's word? And if not, what is it that you're interested in delighting in, in rather than God and his word? Beloved, you seek happiness in those things. It will always lead you dry and parched. It won't satisfy or provide you what you need. What the world has to offer you, comparatively speaking, are broken cisterns. You see, God's blessing belongs to those whose heart is characterized by a posture of humility and recognizing their need for the word. And as such, they eagerly desire it, but, but desire it, but not just desire it, but take active steps to actually devour like a generous, juicy cut of prime rib on Christmas Day. True and enduring happiness is found through meditating on his word. And I want for us to see, as you look with me at verse 3, why? Because this is the result. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruits in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You see, what we pursue, whose word we choose to listen to and believe as, as charting our path in life matters. One is infinitely greater than the other. The one who meditates on God's word thrives in what matters in life. But the wicked in verse 4, they don't endure or last. See, when you meditate on God's word, you are setting yourself up for success. This is what happens when you read, learn, and memorize the language of faith of God's people. You'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. You'll be located in the perfect place for your faith to grow and thrive, to mature in your faith. Why? Because your spiritual roots are, are pulling and drawing from Scripture, which is able and will make you grow like a tree planted in that perfect place to get your nutrients from. So if you want to grow in your faith, if you want, to, want a great faith, if you want to see a, a big God in your life, you have to meditate on God's word. There's no shortcuts. You see, a state of blessing or happiness isn't a reward. It's the result and outcome of a particular pattern of life for the one who believes in Jesus and follows him. And this is the blessing that occurs for those who prize and treasures God's word and they see their desperate need for it every single day. And so I, I hope you see why pursuing a life of delight in God's word is much better. Where you experience true happiness, unlike following the path of the wicked who don't know God. You see, the wicked are like that outer husk of wheat that gets blown away from the wind, if you were to throw up a heap of wheat in the air, the kernel falls down, but the husk, the outer shell, blown away due to its light, airy nature. We should pause and consider the clear contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous love God's word, the wicked scoff at it. And what we pursue and what we avoid reveals what we love. And Psalm 1 draws the line in the sand because from God's perspective, their lives are weightless rather than weighty. Their lives are rootless rather than rooted. So ask yourself this. 
if you don't love the Bible, if the Holy Scripture is like yucky food that you avoid and refuse to eat, can you really say you are loving God? You can really have assurance you're a Christian? But beloved, this passage also offers you hope. Maybe some of you are struggling in this area. You're discouraged, beat up, feeling the burden of guilt after hearing yet another you need to read your Bible sermon. I want you to know God is gracious. He's merciful. God continues to pursue us and desires us not to give up in delighting, to fight for this delight. And so if you don't feel delight at the idea of reading God's word, you must realize that the goal is, is looking and thinking through God's word long enough so you may behold wondrous truths and then your heart will then catch fire. Sometimes your feelings need to be transformed and catch up as you change and as you commit to the grind and habit of reading and thinking through God's word for yourself. And eventually, your newfound affection for God's word will develop. Think of it this way. The goal of scripture, well, well, the goal isn't to master scripture, but to be mastered by them. And so as we come to the end of this psalm, we're given the third mark of those who are blessed, as well as those who don't experience true blessing in relation with God. Verses 5 to 6 teaches us that the blessed are ultimately marked by their outcome. What's your outcome? That's the third mark. There's two possible outcomes for how one has lived, depending on how one has lived, as well as whether one is in a saving relationship with God or not. If you choose to live your life like a choose-your-own-adventure story, it will only lead to your own destruction and God's judgment. You see, we human beings were created to worship God, and his word instructs us on how to do that. That is one of the purpose of being created as humans, Our lives are futile if the most important purpose for why we were created is never discovered. Those who are truly happy and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, Matthew 5, 6. So how should this affect and change your thinking about your relationship with God, both to Christians and non-Christians? Well, if you're a Christian, someone who believes and follows after Jesus, You must spend time and be disciplined in regularly taking in God's word on your own. Like water for a planted tree, God's word is living water for your heart. It's what's going to help you live a distinct gospel-centered life, bearing spiritual fruit in your life. It's what's going to help you see life and the world through the lens of truth in a world of confusion and opposing thoughts and ideas. Whether you're on a college campus exposed to a vast array of theories of this world, or you're a parent struggling to see how to have a rightly ordered priority and rhythm that fosters true godliness in your family or any other station of life as a believer. We could all use a dose of humility to admit that there's much more to learn and grow in through God's word. Perhaps put ourselves in the context of a a Christian community group or, or fellowship or develop those relationships where God's word can be poured into our lives, where it can be discussed, where it can be shared. And as God's people here at Sunset applied so that we are being gospel-transformed disciples.
the way of the righteous delight in listening and walk and talking about God's word. They don't settle for just hanging out all the time. Brother, sister, is that your heart? Reflection time is a perfect opportunity to think and talk about what you just learned with other people. Ask questions, to have Bible conversations and to find delight in that. Having questions about the Bible is a great thing. It's a sign of delight as you seek out answers in a community desiring to help you grow in maturity and disciple you into knowing God better. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, and you're joining us maybe because a friend invited you or something, I just want to say welcome, okay? It's not like Christians have never been wicked or, or ungodly. Everyone is a sinner, okay? I assure you, everyone in here is a sinner. But the biggest change in our lives was believing and placing our faith in Jesus, the Son of God, the one who lived a perfectly righteous life, then died on the cross for our sins and resurrected on the third day to give us hope of having this eternal life, of having a right relationship with God when we were enemies opposed against God. You see, Jesus is the only person as God's Son who perfectly delighted and obeyed the word of God, the Father, perfectly, without fail. And by placing our faith in who Jesus is and what he accomplished by dying in our place as our substitute for sin and taking on the punishment we deserve, we, be, we, we believe we receive this blessing of salvation, of eternal life rather than judgment. And only in light of this new life that we have with Christ can we now live and pursue this righteousness in our lives and delight in God's truth until he takes us home. And so my hope for you, if you're not a believer, is that you would see the urgency of believing the gospel, for it is only Jesus who can rescue you from living for worldly idols, and so that you may inherit and experience a saving relationship with the one true God who created you. Will you pray with me? Father, we confess we don't love you as much as you deserve. Our eyes tend to turn towards lesser things. Our desires tend to gravitate that which cannot satisfy, Lord. Forgive us and let us place our hope confidently that you will continue as your promise to guide us the right way to paths of righteousness, Lord. Guide us in ways in life in a way that's pleasing to you, even as we together as a church eagerly look forward to the next year that we might behold the wondrous works that you will do through our church so that we could be a testimony through our lives, through our transformation, through our eagerness and appetite for your word to shape and transform us. And may that transformation, that countercultural movement starting here in our lives, in our relationship with you through your word, impact this city and beyond. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.